Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. You know, as a preacher, um, I think whenever I start a series, I start to uh, develop something like a relationship with that series because it occupies pretty much the entirety of my mental space for a period of time. And it, it frames how I look at the world for the duration of that series. And so as we bring a series to a close, I always feel a little bit of sadness. And I want to bring the series to a close in a good way. And as I look forward to the next series, there's always a little bit of apprehension, like the first time that you hang out with a new friend. And so that's kind of where I am right now. We want to bring this series to a close. If you're new and you're just joining us for the first or maybe second time, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as lead pastor here at Harvest. And I do the bulk of the preaching here. And we've been working our way through a series called Life-Changing Conversations. And the, the thrust of that series is that we really want to see, in general, we want to see an elevation of our standards for what conversation is supposed to mean whenever we talk to one another. Because I think we're in a very noisy culture, but people don't really listen to or talk with one another. And when they're talking, they're often talking at each other. We're not thinking as we challenge and shape one another through our thought. And so I just want to really elevate the standards and the level of dialogue, of discourse between people. But the second and more important meaning is, along the way, we also want to make sure that we're talking to people about Jesus Christ. Because people don't get to know Jesus by accident. Unless we share with others about who Jesus is, he will remain for many people a vague mystery. And I really agree with what Marcus just prayed for us, that it's not through arguments or intelligence, but through a real encounter. And so we're hoping, as has happened throughout human history, that many people will encounter Jesus in the course of a conversation with a trusted friend as we talk to one another about who he is and what he means to us. I want to start the message. And by the way, this last message is going to be a little weird. Okay, it's not going to be your typical study of Greek and Hebrew and like very well reasoned out structure and all that. I'm going to share with you a, a guidance into what I hope will be at least one practical way you can respond to this whole series. I'm hoping as a result that all of us will feel more motivated to speak to others at a deeper level, but that some of you will feel motivated to take this very practical, tangible next step along with us as a church. I want to start with a couple video clips because it's always a, an amazing experience when you get to be with somebody who is experiencing something for the very first time. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I think that's why we love to give people foods they haven't tried and we stare at their faces as they taste it. We put the headphones on and say, hey, listen to this song, and we're hoping that it will rock them the way it rocked us. I think it's just a generally a joy to see somebody have a new experience for the first time in their life. Here's the first clip. <clears throat> uh, it's been my privilege 
to have been the father, the person who has done this to each of my four kids. And I want you to just watch this clip. Big bite, big bite. What do you think? Pretty good? You gonna try some more? No more lemon? No more lemon? No. I only regret that uh, I did that to my children before videos on phones were very commonplace. That's just a, a little clip to remind you that not every new experience is a positive one, right? There's a lot of new experiences in the world that grieve us, that wound us, that leave a really bad mark. And so that's one way of experiencing new things. But once in a while... We get to be with somebody as they experience something good for the first time. And when you look in their face, when you see the sense of joy and wonder, it's like you're experiencing it with them for the very first time yourself. I I don't know how I stumbled upon this next video clip, but I watched it about a hundred times this week and I can't, I'm addicted to it. I can't stop watching this little girl because she captures for me the joy of a new discovery. Will you watch this clip? you just love that clip? I actually edited it because it was much longer and I wanted to spare you five whole minutes of watching that little girl. But I loved when she first realized water just falls out of the sky and she's like, mom, come check this out. Like her mom's never seen rain. And when you bring her back inside, what does she want? She can't get enough. She wants more because this is something new and it's good 
and she's tasting it for the first time. And I love that moment. And I wish we had more of those moments as we get older in life. Don't you ever just get tired of the jaded, been there, done that apathy that's settling over our world? And I love watching somebody discover something new. And I really do believe in my heart that the greatest joy we can experience is watching somebody finally realize who their Savior is. It's a name that's so familiar. You, you almost think you know him just by being an American. But then there's one day, and for me it happened in the 17th year of going to church. Think about that. 17 years of being dragged 52 times a year to church for hours. Can you feel me? Hours. Like 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. kind of church. And yet in my 17th year, lights came on. And I understood who Jesus Christ was. It changed everything for me. I mean, even my vocation, what I do for a living. I was going to be a surgeon and just completely derailed every plan I had because Jesus was the dividing mark of my entire life. And if you ever have been there at the moment when a human being recognizes their Savior for the very first time, it is the most intoxicating thing to watch. And it will get you excited about a thing that's very familiar to you. I watched that video and I was like, God, get rid of this cold. I want some rain to come so I could just stand in my driveway and let it rain. And when's the last time you just stood out in the rain? We're always like, oh, this rain, this rain. Do you see that little girl just standing in the rain? And I want it to rain. And it makes us long for what we're sick of what we're bored of, what's familiar, because you see it through new eyes. Scottish theologian William Barclay made a very interesting observation. He said, it is only when truth is self-discovered that it is appropriated. That's not Harry Carey, by the way. It's William Barclay. When a man is simply told the truth, it remains external to him, And he can quite easily forget it. But when he is led to discover the truth for himself, it becomes an integral part of him, and he never forgets it. I think one of the most common errors in sharing Christ with others is the idea that I have to somehow be the salesman who closes the deal. I've got to persuade this person to believe differently than what they do now. And if I've done my job and answered every question or obstacle, they will have no choice but to sign on the dotted line. Persistent salespeople always do this. They go, well, what's wrong? Is it the price? What can I do to get... And I'm like, you know what? The problem is I just don't want what you're selling. You can change the price. You can be nice to me. You can throw in an extra set of towels. I just don't want what you're selling. There's nothing you can do to make the deal better. And sometimes that's how we feel about sharing Jesus. Like it's up to us to persuade people 
this is the way for you. And if we've done our job and answered everything, you have to buy it. When a salesman asked me, what have I done wrong? What am I missing? What? Nothing. You did a great job. You should be salesman of the year. I just don't want to buy your stuff, man. No matter what else you do until I want it, I don't want it. And I think that's the journey people are on. That they don't know Jesus yet, but he wants them to. And he really loves them. And he is highly motivated to introduce himself to them. And that everything in their lives to that point, whether they recognize it or not, has been part of God's unfolding effort to break through the fog and make himself known to them somehow. I think the best way for people to come to meet Jesus is for us to invite them into a process where Jesus is able to reach them and introduce himself to them. That in a way, while we have made the introductions, we can at some point step aside out of the way and invite them to get to explore Jesus and invite Jesus to continue revealing himself to them. And that one realization, probably more than other things, has helped take the pressure off for me that I am not God's salesman. That the kingdom of heaven is not a multi-level marketing thing. (laughs) Jesus is not my upline, okay? The goal is simply to say, hey, I love you. I have this awesome friend named Jesus. I think the two of you would dig each other. Will you come and get to know him? Now, I know having, and I'm surprised even to be saying these things this way, because I was raised in a very different era. When I was in seminary, the course I took called Evangelism 101 was actually Evangelism Explosion on steroids. It was analogy after analogy, philosophical and logical construct one after the other, And I I sensed that the goal was to stand at somebody's door and spar with them. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? Until my kung fu proved better than theirs. And they're like, you got me. Where do I sign? Baptize me right now. You're too good. Everything I say, you say better. I have no place to run now. You have convinced me that Jesus is the way. And it created a pressure and desperation on both sides of that encounter that I think in the end was in some ways counterproductive to the process by which human beings become aware of their creator and their savior. The truth is that I, some of us came to Christ that way through a very invitational transactional encounter and praise God for the ways that he can use just about any methodology to reach people. But if I were to poll you, I would say many in this room came to know who Jesus was to them over the course of a process that may have culminated in a very important day in your life, but was actually the the result of an unfolding journey of discovery as Jesus was becoming clearer to you and he was telling you who he was. There's an example from the life of Jesus himself 
where he invites certain men around him who would later become very important to his life. He invites them in this natural, organic pace to come and get to know him better. If you look at the very beginning of the book of John, see, I was always brought up in Sunday school learning that the way Jesus got disciples is he just walked up to total strangers and goes, you, there, you there, tax collector guy, what's your name? Matthew, Matthew, come follow me right now. Now or never, buddy. Are you in or are you out? And Matthew's like, ugh, in. (laughs) And he just started following Jesus and he later died a martyr's death. And that's the way I thought it always worked. And in some cases, that's exactly how it worked. Jesus meets someone and goes, you, now. And, right, I, I just, that's why I picture, you two, on me. And just like Navy SEALs, are like, yes, sir. And they never stop following him. I think that's a cool story when that happens. And I thought that happened for everybody, especially his inner circle. I was amazed to discover that, in fact, Andrew and Peter came to know Jesus much more gradually over the course of several encounters where who he was was dawning on them. Check out John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. The following day, John, John the Baptist, by the way, was standing again with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there's my cousin. Well, (laughs) he's also saying, Hey, look, there is the Lamb of God. Not a lot of guys say that about their cousin unless their cousin has deeply impressed them. Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. By the way, following me, literally stalking behind him, Lamb of God, who is this guy? Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? How's that for Evangelism 101? What do you want? He asked them, they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying. And they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. I love the way that whole encounter unfolds. Because it wasn't just an event. These men got to know Jesus the way anybody gets to know anybody. They were drawn in, interested, and then invited to come closer. And they just asked him, what a weird thing. Oh, well, we weren't stalking. You were just wondering, um, hey, where are you staying? <laughs> I don't know if that was divinely inspired, if that's the best thing they came up with when they got caught following the guy. Where are you? What do you want? Where are you staying? And he says to them, what? Why don't you come over? Come see where I'm staying. And he invited them to hang out with him for the rest of the whole day. And they just got to know each other. I wrote a blog entry 
couple years ago about what it must be like to be Andrew. <laughs> and in a way, I, I kind of identify with him because I'm the older brother, but I get overshadowed by my younger brother a lot. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Andrew was the first to take an interest in Jesus. He was the first to discover, to discern who this guy was. He comes and tells his lazy brother Peter, who's out fishing, not interested in spiritual things, hey dude, you know the Messiah that our grandfathers are talking about, our dads are talking about? I just found him. Simon's like, what? He says, come here, I, I got to introduce you to this guy. And he brings his brother, goes, hey, Jesus, I'm already working for you. I brought my little brother. And Jesus goes, Andrew, get out of the way. Simon, you and me, our destinies are locked, dude. You're going to be my right hand. I'm even going to change your name. Andrew's like, how come I'm still Andrew? Could you call me Pierre something? Just give me something. Don't you just love that Andrew meets someone great and he runs to someone else he loves and says, you got to meet this guy. And what's amazing is that as he makes the connection, they have even a more profound relationship than Andrew had. And that's happened to me. I've led people to Christ who love Jesus and are loved by him in ways that I am still trying to discover. Like jealous. Hey, man, I kind of hooked you guys up. Could you, could you not run past me? <laughs> Stay back there. Stay in your lane. But what a joy when you're able to broker an encounter between two people you love, and there's a connection made. For me, that is the picture of the way evangelism in the majority case should happen. That I have this Savior whom I love, and I have this friend whom I love, and I would love for the two of them to love each other. When I see that natural rhythm of hanging out at somebody's house and just listening, asking questions, getting to familiarize yourself with his phraseology, with the quirks, with the way he snorts when he laughs too hard, when he spits a little as he says his hard consonants, and you're getting to know this person, I think that's one of the most beautiful ways for a human being to meet their Savior. And so I want to give you an invitation to consider a way of responding to this whole series by creating a setting where people are able to do just that. I think it's often presumed that most of the time when we're sharing with someone about Jesus, it's a solo endeavor, a one-on-one encounter. Me with you, no distractions, talking at length in one conversation about faith, and at the end of it, I'm going to ask you for a decision and you're going to make the right one, I hope. Now, I'm not making fun of that at all. What I'm saying is that's not the only way for it to happen. I think another way that it happens is over the course of multiple conversations, in a safe place, and quite often in a group setting. Not just me, mano a mano against you, but many of us openly sharing in a safe place what we truly believe, what our hopes and aspirations and fears are, what we desperately want to be true of God, but what we suspect in our hearts is actually true of God, those things need to be spoken. 
And so often in evangelism, it's the Christian doing all the talking. Before we even hear what the other person truly believes, we are well into our sales pitch telling them what they should be believing instead. And the truth is, I think that's off-putting and even disrespectful. I think some people, before they're really ready to listen, just for once want to be heard. And if we let them share openly what they believe, they might for the first time hear their own beliefs through fresh ears. I think so often people don't get to know what they believe because they're cut off before they ever finish. But you let people finish their sentences, they will hear their own beliefs stated And sometimes they'll say, wow, this is actually what I believe. I finally got it out. Someone let me spit the whole thing out. And as I hear myself, I'm not sure where I pulled this out of. (laughs) I believe it was such conviction, such authority. It's so intricate a system of cause and effect of truth and lies. But where did I get all of it? And I think for many people, they will reach one of two conclusions. It was just handed down to me. I didn't even question it. This is just what everybody told me. Or number two, I made it all up. (laughs) I just want it to be this way. I feel inherently like the universe owes us this, that it should work like this. And that's the way most people will conclude this is how everything works. We've recently come in contact with a ministry called Q Place. And Q Place is a ministry that leverages the power of small group conversations to help people create a safe environment where everyone can share openly what they believe truly in their hearts. And then talk about Jesus without somebody assaulting them with doctrine, but instead saying, here's what I believe. What do you believe? Here's what the Bible says. What do you make of this? And over the course of that open discussion, people come to discover Jesus for themselves. Remember what Barclay said, is that when someone lectures you into something, you might know it long enough to get an A on the test, but it won't become a part of you. But when you discover something for yourself, you never really forget it. It becomes a part of who you are. And one of the things I love, there's two things I really appreciate about the Q Place small group methodology. One of them is that it's built around something called a triad. And the idea is you would start this group with three Christians who are like-minded in their conviction that they want people who don't know Jesus yet desperately to know him. That's something that occupies their thoughts. It's one of the reasons they're becoming bored at church is that we haven't seen a new person meet the Lord in forever, and I just want to see that happen. There are some people for whom that is one of the most urgent desires of their heart is when will we see people meet Jesus for the first time? And if that's you, then I want you to be very attentive to what God may be saying to you during the rest of this message. Because not everybody's bothered by that. But some of us are deeply stirred by that. And if that speaks to you, then I'm speaking to you, especially this morning. The idea of a triad is that if I try to tackle this this great undertaking by myself, I will often lose steam, I will lose my way, I will lose heart. 
And so build, it's, it's really derived from Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Do you remember this familiar passage? It says, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. And so the idea of the triad comes from this simple biblical concept that if three people agree to tackle something together, they will have a far greater likelihood of success and longevity than even one or two trying to do it by themselves. And so the idea behind a Q-Play small group, that's one of the things I love, is it's three Christians banding together with a similar heart for people who don't know Jesus yet. This is not your, your Green Beret recruitment force, okay? Don't get the wrong idea about what I'm describing here. Our goal is not to recruit more people for the team. It is to say that we have found something in Jesus truly worth having. And I'm obsessed with other people having it too. I think sharing Jesus is at its heart one of the most unselfish activities in the human experience. And so I want to encourage you, if that's your heart, to think about forming a triad and engaging in this kind of ministry. And here's the other part I really love about it. Every member of the triad reaches out in their network of friends and invites two or three people who don't know Jesus yet in this way and says, would you come to a small group where we're just going to talk openly and honestly, no judgment, no lecturing, about what you really believe about God and life? And we'll share it too. And the idea here is that if all three people invite two or three, the one thing that they insist on these groups is that non-Christians outnumber Christians by at least a ratio of two to one, preferably three to one. In a group of 12 people, ideally nine out of the 12 should not be Christians because when you have a majority of Christians, there is, I wouldn't even say a tendency, an almost certainty that the Christians will dominate everything. That it will be a gang obsession. It will be a a beatdown. And so what we're trying to do here is to create a setting in which there is no danger or little danger of the majority ganging up on a minority. And from left, you know, it's like getting kicked by 12 people. Everyone trying to kick you from a different angle but get you to the same place. We don't want it to feel like that. We, we genuinely want this to be a safe place where everyone is able to say, well, here's what I actually believe happens to us. Here's what I actually believe is life. Thank you, Joy. Thankfully, I'm almost done. So bear with me for a few more minutes here. And as these non-Christians outnumber the Christians, they have more who believe similarly to them than who don't. And I think that's important because that creates now a place where I have at least some assurance that I'm going to get a fair hearing and that I'm not going to be lectured at but listened to and spoken to with some dignity and with some respect. 
I think that is such an important part of the equation. Because I don't think anybody likes the experience of being sold or being ganged up on. But when we actually have a free marketplace of ideas and I'm really being listened to, I always feel better about engaging the conversation. These small groups, what we call exploration groups, okay? We have CGs, which are community groups. We have DGs, which are discipleship groups. We're going to add one more, EGs, which are exploration groups, okay? They have, a, they have four core values I want to quickly spell out for you. One is that self-discovery is important, that these people need a chance to meet Jesus on their own. And that we trust enough that Jesus is compelling on his own, that he is attractive, that people who explore him will see much to admire in him. We have to have a greater trust that Jesus is actually likable, that he's somebody people who explore him honestly will be drawn more to. And so we really insist on a sense of self-discovery. Let people figure Jesus out. Ask good questions about him. Be curious about him. Second is, it's got to be a safe place. If somebody says, I believe that when we die, each of us sprouts a horn and we become unicorns. And that heaven is a large corral where the unicorns play. And they're saying with a straight face, like they truly want this to be the case. They believe it. A safe place where we go, (laughs) right? You don't start laughing and saying, (laughs) Unicorns. A safe place is where you go, okay. Unicorns it is. Where did you get that belief? It's a fair question. Now, <clears throat> I'm using a very exaggerated... If somebody said that, I'd actually laugh a little and have to repent because that's hilarious to me. I, I could, it'd be hard not to laugh at unicorns, but there are people who say things that to my... 30-year experience as a Christian are very offensive. They're so wrong in my worldview, I'm not sure where to start, and I, I'm tempted to just go, oh, you're blowing my circuits here. That's so not the way it works. But I think it's so important to let people finish their sentences because that is the truth to them at that moment. In the same way that I had a very loopy version of the truth, once, once before in my life. We want it to be a safe place. Third, we want to believe that the Spirit is at work and we're helping Him, not the other way around. We're not supposed to say, Holy Spirit, help me! I'm trying to get this guy! It should, it should never feel like that. It should never be thought of that way. i got to get this guy on our team somehow. Holy Spirit, help me! Says who? The living God loves that person. He knows that their life will be richer and fuller and more filled with hope and joy if they knew him. He desperately wants that for them. And the Spirit of God is in hot pursuit, wanting them to know who he is. We are helping God and not the other way around. Sometimes the greatest help we can give him is to get out of the way and just go, God, you're at work. This person is getting to know you. And I'm not really even involved in the process right now. I think our view of God becomes greater as we watch him introduce himself to other people. And finally, scripture. 
I have no problem opening up the Bible with somebody who's not a Christian yet. Because I think it makes some tremendous claims that have shaped the culture we live in. And I want to know what that person thinks about those claims. I'm very interested for them to see the words for themselves and draw a conclusion about them along with me. And so I really believe that when we get together, it's fair game to open up Scripture and let that be at least some of the content of what we have conversations about. If you feel like a group like this is very attractive to you, that your heart is being stirred, and I'll, I'll grant you, it's a little uncomfortable thinking about walking up to some of the dads, you know, that are hanging out at the football practice along with your kid, and, you know, you're like, hey, what's up, buddy? I know normally we just drink coffee and complain about the coaching strategy, but I was just wondering... <laughs> If you'd like to come to a small group with me and talk about God and faith and life, it's not that comfortable. But I've heard testimony after testimony of the amazing response that people have had to such an invitation. And if you are drawn to this possibility even a little bit, then in the weeks ahead, you're going to have an opportunity to come and learn more about this, how to do it, what it looks like. And then you can have the opportunity, if you want to move forward, to receive some in-depth training. And that training would not just come from our in-house staff. We have a good buddy named Jeff Klein who is over-the-top enthusiastic about this ministry. He's a very capable teacher. He will come and infect you with his fever as well. I just, I just want to talk to people about Jesus when I get around this guy. And so he'll come and help us along with some of the training. Pastor Jared will do some of the training. I will help with some of the training. And we want to make sure you know how to do this ministry. And then we want to help you form your first triad and launch your group. And if this is something you're interested in pursuing, it's not mandatory, but you would also then have the option of stepping away temporarily from your community group for the duration of this exploration group so that this would become your spiritual community and this will become your primary ministry in the kingdom and in the church. I believe now more than ever, people need to hear about Jesus Christ. I'll end with this. Recently, the state of Indiana made some very, a very controversial decision about what its stance on religious freedom is going to be. And if you read the blogosphere, the Twitter sphere, the Facebook posts. Everybody's got their undies in a bunch. Everybody's so passionate about this issue. And I bet you in this room right now, we have ardent representatives on both ends of this argument. Some are calling it the most bigoted and hate-filled, narrow-minded, stupid, backwards policy ever to be carried out by state government. And others going, finally! A state government found their moral backbone, has the courage to stand up for scripture and what is right, and on and on. And it's just like Republican and Democrat. Um, Edward, and who's the other? <laughs> Twilight dude? <laughs> Jacob? Nikon? Canon? Mag? PC? Nobody will ever cross the street. And I read the ardent, strident conviction in everybody's side of the argument. And I think if we were to poll Jesus and go, what do you make of this? I think he'd be sick of both sides, to be honest with you. 
I think you would look at both sides of the argument and go, do you idiots think? Well, I don't think Jesus is an idiot. That's what I'm feeling. Do you idiots think that anyone is saved by your being on their side? Being open-hearted about their condition or their choices? Do you think your tolerance and acceptance will bring anyone into the kingdom of heaven? It's a good start not to make us look like jerks. But do you think that that's all it takes for a human being to become a human being? Is that we're nice to them. On the other hand, do you fools think that your moral fortitude and your standing up for what is right is going to bring anybody into the kingdom of heaven? That your moral outrage, your insistence on personal responsibility, on true freedom and liberty and the founding fathers and blah, blah, blah is going to bring anyone into the kingdom of God. Do you think that when Jesus looks at the world, he divides it between left and right wing, tolerant and intolerant, gay and straight? When Jesus looks at the human race, he only sees one dividing line, those who know that he loves them and have trusted that love and those who don't. That is the only thing that matters. And unless your strident conviction translates into some real witness for Jesus to a real person, Because Facebook activism is nothing. It costs nothing to have a very big opinion. I see so many people on both sides just trying to be acceptable to whichever block they want to identify with. I want to be seen as one of the good guys by whoever I consider the good guys to be. How little it costs us to post something online about what we believe. It costs virtually nothing. 16 calories of effort to click a few keys. That's a little courage to be outed on one side of the aisle or the other. But I think the heart of Jesus is this. Will you let your upset flow over the edge of your cup to actually tell somebody, a real flesh and blood person, how deeply they are loved in Jesus Christ? Stopping a walking policy Stopping a walking opinion and start to be the voice of Jesus Christ to real people. There's no shortage of opinions expressed by God's followers. But evangelism, the sharing of real Jesus, is at an all-time low. And I want to implore you as a church... I want God to do this in me. Let's stop engaging in the ministry of siding with this or siding with that. And let's side with Jesus Christ who loves people, who desperately wants everyone to be saved, to enter his great kingdom, to experience a full and rich life under his dominion and his rule. He is a good king. He wants to set people free. In heaven, we will see people who voted for Bush, We will see people who voted for Clinton. We will see people who live their entire adult lives as homosexuals and their entire adult lives as heterosexuals. And when you ask them, how'd you get in here? Every last one of them will only have one story. I met Jesus Christ one day and I knew who he was. And everything else I was took a backseat to that. And that's all that mattered afterwards. I couldn't quite kick some of the things 
that gripped me. But I'm here because I clung to Jesus Christ in faith. And he carried me home. Listen, I don't want to embarrass you or call you out if you express an opinion. That's not my point at all. I love that you care enough to say something. Now I'm just asking, do you care enough to say something to a real person that isn't pontification or anger, but that Jesus wants to know you? That is the most important message anyone can hear, gay or straight, left or right. That your life will only be made complete when you come to know this Jesus. That's what I hope will fire us up more than anything else in our culture today. That we will tell people of Jesus' great love and they will see in him such beauty that they will be drawn forward. Let me just invite you to bow your head with me. I'm feeling a little guilty because I don't want anybody who expressed a strong opinion about that issue to feel somehow rebuked or anything like that. I'm actually encouraged by anybody who feels anything today. I want to ask those of you who feel and believe so strongly to hear the call of Jesus on you to translate that strong feeling into a real witness for who he is. And if you're one of those who really does feel strongly about what is being said and thought and done in our country, then I really want to encourage you to consider whether God will use you in a profound way in a small group setting like this to create a safe place where other people who believe very differently than you will be able to explore what they believe and find their way towards Jesus day by day. I want to ask if you bow with me in prayer and just listen for a moment. You've heard me spout on this morning and uh, some of my words should be forgotten. Some I hope will haunt you, but listen to God himself in this moment. And I especially want to encourage those who are feeling more than just a passing rumbling in your soul about people who are far from Christ. It's a risk, but maybe that rumbling is God's invitation for you to join this ministry and experience something new. We would love to work with you. We would love to see you be there at the moment when somebody meets Jesus for the first time and the lights come on. So take a minute and listen to the voice of God, whatever he may be saying to you this morning, and then I'll close for us in prayer. 
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.